Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. So we had a pretty good Christmas uh, with our kids. Uh, we always like to put up a Christmas tree, of course, every year. Another one of the decorations we love to, to have in our home is a nativity scene. We always put up a nativity scene, sometimes several nativity scenes. I think they're a great reminder of, uh, of really what Christmas is. You'll notice, however, that all, all nativity scenes are, are, are pretty much the same thing. Central to your nativity scene is, of course, the, the Christ child in the manger. Gathered close by, of course, are his parents, Mary and Joseph, kind of kneeling protectively around the creche where the uh, Christ child lays. And then, of course, you have to the periphery a couple of adoring shepherds, right? One of whom inevitably carries a lamb in his arms. And then to the other side, you have your wise men, your three kings, your three magi from the east, gifts in hand, waiting to come and adore uh, the child to worship him as well. And then you've got your cow and your donkey. Those two animals tend to show up in most of our uh, nativity sets. And the more elaborate sets even come with an angel, right? Golden-haired, arms outstretched, declaring peace on earth and goodwill to men. So really the variance between nativity scenes is negligible. For the longest time, I didn't really pay much attention to the characters in these displays. Until recently it dawned on me that one of the most important figures is nowhere to be found. All this time, I'd missed it, that insidious, putrid thing lurking at the back of the stable. It wasn't until I read the Christmas story again, this time from Revelation 12, that I saw the missing figure, the dragon, the ancient serpent, coiled by the manger waiting to devour the child. So Revelation 12, we'll be reading this text in in a few moments, but Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6, really is the Christmas story. It's the Christmas story. Um, It's the story, really, of the church, of our current challenge in this world between Advents, between the first and second coming of Christ. So as we turn to the book of Revelation this Sunday, I want us to ponder the large-scale cosmic implications of the coming of Christ, what that means for the church today. You see, Christmas is as much about the past, as much about what God has done, as it is about what God is doing. Christmas is as much about future hope as it is about current challenges Christmas is about the victory of the King of Kings, the victory of the Prince of Peace, but it's also about the animus, the hostility of the Prince of the Power of the Air, the Devil. So at Christmas time, we rightly focus on the Advent. We're right to do that, to look at the Advent of Christ, but oftentimes we wrongly ignore the broader meaning of the circumstances surrounding the birth of the Christ. So turn with me to Revelation 12. We'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 6. And this is the Apostle John writing to seven churches in Asia. 
And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this difficult text, this challenging imagery, is Scripture, God-breathed and useful for our edification, for our knowledge, for our correction, for training us in the ways of righteousness. And so we ask, Lord, that today you would guide us in this time of study, that you would reveal your word to us, that you would illuminate its meaning in our hearts, that we might adore and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we just read a a passage of scripture uh, that employs some rather arcane language. Uh, But this passage of scripture really summarizes the overall and overarching narrative of Scripture. Revelation 12, 1 through 6 recounts the historic struggle that takes place between Satan, the devil, and God and his people. It tells us of the birth of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the power of God over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In fact, this story is the story of God's redemptive plan and the story of of Satan's vengeance, his attempt to destroy the Messiah before he can carry out this plan. Revelation 12 reminds us that we live in dangerous times between two advents. Now, the book of Revelation is clearly a fascinating, challenging, confusing book that has roused ample debate and no little controversy about its intent about how to interpret it, but I think we'll get a lot more out of this book, and particularly this passage today, if we read it in its first century context, according to the purpose of the Apostle John who wrote this book under the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the will of the Father. So first things first, I want to encourage you not to read this story solely to garner information about future events. In fact, I'd warn you, don't read the book of Revelation solely to garner information about future events. Now, that's part of what the book of Revelation is, but I think we'll get a lot more out of it if we read it to experience spiritual transformation and edification through its rich gospel narrative. That's really the point. So the book of Revelation is about God's power. It's about God's power in effectuating his plan of salvation for the elect, and in exacting judgment against the reprobate. Second, don't take the story literally. 
understand that we need to take Scripture literarily, okay? We take it according to its literary genre, and in this case, we're looking at apocalyptic symbolism. The numbers in this book are not always literal, but figurative. The imagery in this book is not always literal, but figurative, okay, symbolic. Third, don't take the, the narrative of Revelation chronologically as a story that is unfolding only in the future. This book bounces all over the place. In fact, if you read the, the, the previous chapters, you see the ascended Christ on the throne, the throne room of God. You're seeing future events. You're seeing present events. But then we come to Revelation 12, and now suddenly we are reading the nativity story, the birth of Jesus Christ. So understand that this book jumps around a little bit. So Revelation 12 is the story of Christmas. It's a summary of that ongoing struggle that exists between God's people and the devil, a struggle that culminates at the birth of Christ. So with these preliminary remarks out of the way, let's, let's dig into the text a little bit. Now, it's almost as if John here is introducing a cage fight. Okay, you've seen maybe this UFC fighting or, or mixed martial arts or maybe you've watched a boxing match at some point in your life or, or professional wrestling. You've got this big arena, this big auditorium, and at the center is this ring where the fight is going to take place. And so John is introducing our, our two contenders, our two competitors here. And so you've got all eyes on, this, on the ring. People are waiting in anticipation for the fight to begin. The, 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 the lights dim. You hear that eerie kind of atmospheric music come on, and the announcer points us to one side of the arena. The spotlight shines down, and here we have our first competitor, a woman. And she is quite a woman, right? Clothed in the radiance of the sun. <clears throat> so this represents her glory, right? Her beauty. She's clothed in light. So this is a representation, really, of the righteousness of God. <clears throat> so she's standing on the moon. That's another piece of information that's quite important. What does that mean? She's standing on the moon. This is a symbol of her authority, right? Her elevated position. On her head is a crown of 12 stars. Now, where have we heard that number before? The 12 sons of Jacob, right? The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. This woman really just represents God's people. It's not one particular woman. Now, it could be. It could be an image of Mary or of other women in the history of Israel. But really, this is, this is God's people. God's chosen people. And this woman shows up again and again in Scripture. Really, she is everywhere. She's Eve, right? She's Sarah. She's the mother of Moses. She's Mary. She's God's chosen people. She's the mother of the Messiah. She's the beloved church of Jesus Christ. And she happens to be very pregnant, about to give birth. So that's our first uh, competitor in this match. And then the spotlight shifts to the other side of the auditorium, the other side of the room, and we meet the other contender. A great red dragon. Now, the dragon was a symbol of chaos and death in Scripture. His name in ancient Near Eastern literature was Leviathan. You'll see this term in the book of Job. It's used in the Psalms as well. So the Leviathan was the serpent of the deep, of the chaotic sea. And his red coloring serves as a reflection of his lust for blood. And it's a symbol of the blood that he shed. 
Keep in mind that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. The dragon is represented as a hydra with seven heads. Okay, seven being the number of perfection or completion in scripture. So he's a perfect specimen of rebellion. He's a perfect specimen of evil. His multiple heads attest to his power. You cut off one head, you still have to contend with six. Right? That's the way hydras work. He has ten horns. Horns were a symbol of strength in apocalyptic literature. On his heads are perched seven diadems, seven crowns, a symbol of his power, of his control over the many rulers and kingdoms of the earth. And as he enters the arena, he flexes his muscle a little bit. He shows off. He swipes his tail through the heavens and brings down a third of the stars. And scholars will debate a little bit exactly what this means because stars sometimes is a synonym in Scripture for angels. Some people will point to this idea that he took a third of the angels with him. That's noted in other parts of Scripture. I'm not entirely sure that that's the intent here. I think really the, the, the key piece that we need to pay attention to is that the devil here is, is showing his power. He brings down a third of the stars. He defies God. So in, in your, your typical fight, right before the fight, th this is the guy, this is the belligerent guy, right? This is the guy who's cursing and, and, and spouting obscenities. He's threatening to strangle his opponent with his opponent's own intestines or, or, or something of that nature. He's a belligerent, wrathful creature. So like the woman, the dragon shows up again and again in Scripture. Keep in mind, this is the serpent in the Garden of Eden. This is Pharaoh in Egypt. The devil is behind all of this, right? This is the Leviathan of the chaotic sea. This is Herod the Great who sent his soldiers to destroy the baby boys of Bethlehem. Behind all of that human activity was the devil, the ancient serpent. So John is drawing from themes that are repeated throughout Scripture and which culminate with the birth of Christ. So back to the woman. She's pregnant, about to give birth. Now, we all know that the process of carrying a child, of giving birth, requires tremendous physical and emotional fortitude. It's not an easy thing to do. But regardless of the physical toughness of this woman, things do not look good for her. This is not going to go well. And in fact, the image is rather graphic, if you think about it. The dragon is crouched by the woman's spread legs as she's about to give birth. He waits to tear her infant child apart and devour it as it exits the womb. This fight looks to be over before it even begins. And the thing is, we've seen this all before. Like I said, this is not new. John is describing really a rematch. Understand that in prophetic and apocalyptic literature, there are several layers to the story. So John anticipates, he knows that his readers understand their Old Testament. They've read the Bible. They know their scripture. The woman and the dragon, like I said, they've met before. They first met in the Garden of Eden when Satan tempted Eve to disobey God, leading humanity into their condition of fallenness, of spiritual separation from the Father. You can read it in Genesis 3. They met again in Egypt where the dragon was the one standing behind Pharaoh, hissing in his ear, motivating him to murder the baby boys of Israel, to enslave and torture God's people. You can read about that one in Exodus 
chapters 1 through 14. Or you could listen to Creeping Death by Metallica, which also does a pretty good job explaining the, the, the whole story. They met again in Persia, where Esther alone stood between the dragon and the annihilation of God's people. You can read about that one in the book of Esther, Old Testament. And then came Mary, the mother of Jesus, pregnant with the Savior, the one who would redeem God's people from sin. And the dragon, again, comes with vengeance to devour the baby boys of Bethlehem under the authority of Herod the Great, the, the king of Israel. You can read about that one in, in Matthew chapter 2. And see, the struggle continues. It continues today as the devil schemes against the church, seeking to destroy God's people. And really, the whole point of this ongoing, oft-repeated story is that every single time the devil, the dragon, shows up, things look rather hopeless. You see, the woman cannot stand against the power of the dragon. But notice that God always provides a way out, because when Satan is strong, God is stronger. God ensures that his Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come into the world to accomplish the mission he was sent to accomplish, to give his life as a willing sacrifice in place of sinful human beings so that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, most Christmas movies don't capture the intensity or the peril or the darkness of the coming of the light of the world. Our family watched a lot of Christmas movies this year. I didn't find one that really captured this idea, this concept from Revelation 12. I had to think about it a little bit. And then it occurred to me, there is a good, a good movie out there that, that does this. The Terminator, okay? 1984, Arnold Schwarzenegger, classic science fiction, right? You know the story. In the future, these, this artificial intelligence robot, a machine has taken over the world and is trying to eradicate all of humanity to destroy all human life. But one man rises up against these machines and destroys them, smashes them apart and saves humanity. Now, to stop this from happening, the computer sends a, a Terminator, a robot, back through time to kill the woman, right? To kill the mother of this savior, of this messiah. And so the Terminator shows up to do his thing, but um, I, won't, I won't give away the end of the movie. Um, although at the same time, I have to say, I can't recommend it. I, I, I don't think it's G-rated, so um, we won't recommend that one in, in church. But anyway, that, that's the story. That's what we see here in, in Revelation 12, right? The dragon, this invincible creature, this powerful creature comes to destroy the woman, and yet in God's strength, uh, the woman is saved. So my point is that Jesus was born into a perilous world. And the church operates in a perilous world. In this world between two advents, between the first and second coming of Christ, God's strength manifests itself in our weakness. When Satan is strong, God is stronger. So we come to verse 5. This is really, I think, a repetition of what we find in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. This male child, this offspring of the woman, will rule the nations with an iron scepter. He has authority 
You see, this child would grow up to rule the nations. This is the promised Messiah. When Eve had sinned against God, what did God promise? That her male offspring would crush the head of the serpent. This is that offspring, the Davidic king, the Lord and Savior of the world. And his entire story, his life, birth, ministry, ascension, the whole thing is covered essentially in one verse. Look at verse 5. This is interesting. John does not dwell on the ministry and activity of Jesus Christ. He knows we, we, we get that story elsewhere. We can read that elsewhere. His point is that Jesus came to accomplish everything that God intended and that Satan was utterly powerless to stop it. Now, we sometimes think that Satan wanted to put Jesus on the cross. I don't think that's entirely true. Understand that the dragon wanted to prevent the cross of Jesus Christ. This is why he attempts to destroy God's people before the Messiah can even be born. This is why he goes after the infant boys of Bethlehem when Herod sent his armies to destroy those children in Matthew 2. This is why the devil tempts Jesus to throw himself down from the temple to end his life in Matthew 4, 6. This is why repeatedly the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious rulers of Jesus' time come to stone him. You can read about that in John 8 and John 10. This is why Satan used Peter to rebuke Jesus and say, never, Lord, will we allow you to be handed over. Never, Lord, will you go to the cross. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but rather the things of men. You see, Jesus knew what he needed to do to lay down his perfect sinless life on behalf of sinful men, that God's wrath against sin would be satisfied, and that Jesus would transmit his righteousness, his life, and his victory to those who confess his name, who believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Satan wanted to prevent it. And he continues his assault, even today, on the church. He continued his assault right up to the end. As Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, take this cup from me. But then Jesus understood, not my will, but your will be done. See, the reality of this life between two advents is that Satan's schemes did not prevail against Jesus. The cross of Christ was a victory against spiritual death and against the devil. And yet, like a wounded animal, the devil still bites. Like a chained dog, he still barks. We read ahead in the text, if you go through the rest of this chapter, you'll come eventually to verse 12, and it tells us that the devil has been thrown down to earth to wreak havoc. Michael and his angels fought against the devil and his angels, but the devil is not strong enough to overpower him. The devil was thrown down to earth. Woe to the earth, it says, for the devil has come down to you. Verse 17 tells us that the devil has declared war on the followers of Christ. He's gone after the woman. He couldn't beat the Messiah. He couldn't beat Jesus, but he certainly can harass the church. Now look at it this way. My elementary school years were not always very good to me. 
Um, the problem was my dad was a teacher at the school. It was a small school. Not only was he a teacher at the school, he was the guy in charge of all of the behavioral and disciplinary issues at the school. So all the bullies, all the problem people, all the recalcitrant children, all the unruly ones went to his office to receive restrictive sanctions or whatever punishments were handed out. And you know what this meant for me? They couldn't go after my dad. A 10-year-old against an adult isn't a fair fight. So they'd come after me, right, the next best thing. So I'd be walking to the bus after school and I'd hear somebody behind me shout out, hey, Haddad, and I knew it was gonna be trouble. And it was usually an older kid, a sixth grader or fifth grader, you know, when I was young. So that was my life. Now, it wasn't a daily thing, but it was definitely part of my childhood, right? And you see, in the same way, the devil who could not defeat the Christ has come against the church with wrath. He wants us dead. His hatred for God has become hatred for God's people. But understand that when God's people are defenseless, God is our defender. In verse 6, he prepares a place for the woman. That is, he prepares a place in the wilderness, in the desert, for his people. A place of waiting. Maybe a place of testing. A place of learning. So for 1,260 days, the church waits until God releases his restraint on the devil. Now again, like I said, I'm not going to get into all the details on what exactly this number means in this particular context. A lot of times in Revelation, the numbers are symbolic. This is a particular period of time in which God has restrained the devil against the church. And so the devil is still barking, he's still biting, but he's under the authority of Christ. He's under the authority of God. And so the 1,260 days are mentioned later in the text. This is a time, times, and half a time, right? One year, a time. Two years, times. And then the half times, so three and a half years. So as we look at this passage again, we take this as a whole, verses one through six. What does all of this bizarre imagery mean for the church today? What does it mean to live in this world between two advents as we await the final fulfillment of God's plan? Now, it means that there are non-trivial spiritual realities at work in this world, and we need to be aware of those realities. Now, we all know that the year 2020 was a pretty bad year, maybe worse for some of us than others. It was a bad year, and we can ask ourselves why, and we can give ourselves some pretty good answers to this. So what were the factors that contributed to the COVID pandemic this year? Of course, doctors and virologists can explain these things quite well. They can get into the science behind it. There are good biological explanations and epidemiological uh, explanations for COVID. And yet, at the same time, lurking in the shadows behind all of this is the evil one intent on using the pandemic, using COVID to divide the church, to discourage God's people. How do we explain the civil unrest in this country this year? What about the, 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 the ethnic tensions, all of the rioting, those problems that we saw happening in our cities this year? How do we explain that? 
Now, sociologists can give you a good explanation. Political philosophers will have answers to those questions. Historians will look at the historic factors that have led to these kinds of problems in our country. And yet, lurking in the shadows is the evil one, the dragon, who would use political tension to divide and destroy the church. Unemployment, economic challenges, these things have affected people in our country, people in this congregation. Now, we can assess them and explain them through the lens of economic theory, of even certain political ideologies. And yet, lurking in the shadow is the evil one who would use these things to destroy the church. And what about cancer? What about depression? What about chronic illness? These things have no doubt affected many people, even in our own congregation. In fact, just this week, um, and I think a lot of you have heard the news, but my wife was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Now, we don't know how bad it is. We don't know. There, there's still answers we need. More testing will be done. But Merry Christmas, huh? A good way to end 2020. One more challenge, one more problem, one more evil in this world. Now, we can explain these things biologically. The doctors can look at it and explain why these things happen, why this tumor exists. And yet, lurking behind it is the evil one. Satan wants us dead. He wants us to fall. He couldn't take Jesus down, so he's come for the church. Understand that this is war. He wants the church to fall. He wants us dissatisfied with the church. He wants us to sin against our Lord. He wants our pastors and elders to fall into moral failure. He wants us to fight and squabble amongst ourselves. He wants us to forsake fellowship. He wants us so distracted by the world that we fail to see the idols in our hearts, that we fail to repent and turn to God in worship. But we have to understand that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle isn't against these things happening around us. Our battle isn't against our political opponents. It's not against our difficult neighbors down the street. It's not against our brother or sister in Christ who offended us in some way. Our battle is against the devil, the dragon, and his schemes. Our battle is against the sin that lurks in our own hearts. The challenges, the difficult circumstances in our lives are not the fundamental problem. What these things do is simply expose the sin, expose the pain, expose the reality of death in this fallen world. There's no remedy to these things other than faith in Jesus Christ and utter reliance on him and his plan. Revelation 12 is a reminder that God is sovereign. God is in control. God's plan to save and restore his beloved church will be accomplished. God's word promises that. 
So if we're going to stand in the face of seemingly indomitable evil, we need to know who God is. We have to know who God is. A lot of Christians, I think a lot of us at times, we are uncomfortable talking about God's sovereignty. We're uncomfortable talking about the idea that God is in control because do you know what that means? It means that if God is sovereign, we're not. If God is in control, we're not. And we like to be in the driver's seat. We like to control our own destiny. But again, we need to know who God is. He has a plan. The devil didn't stop the Christ from coming into this world to save us. And he's certainly not going to stop the Christ from returning to glorify and redeem us. God is sovereign. Everything in Scripture, in history, from start to finish, falls under the authority of God. Even the hard stuff, even the tumors. We grieve, but we do not fear. You see, in this world between Advents, we need to ask ourselves, do we stand in the hope of the gospel? Do we relish the hope of salvation that God gave us at the first coming of Christ? Do we long for the glorification that we will experience at the second coming of Christ? How will we live in this world between Advents? Let's pray. Father God, we glorify you. We praise you because you are sovereign, because you are good. And you have a plan, a plan that you put into effect that you imagined before the foundations of the world were laid, a plan of redemption, a plan of healing, a plan of grace. We thank you for that hope, Lord. Would you allow us to live in that beautiful hope? In Jesus' name, amen.